Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brenda. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all today. Welcome to Community Church. We are in the midst of the Cruciform Life series, How the Cross Changes Everything. And if you've missed the first two, I'll quickly do a recap, but each week sort of stands alone. Our life groups are also going through this series, so if you want to dig deeper, it's a great time to join a life group. I've been visiting life groups, answering questions, um, hearing confusion, hearing what are you really saying. It's been great (laughs) because it is challenging what we're going through, but there's a reason for this. When we understand the cross correctly, it impacts how we actually live. Our first week, we talked about who killed Jesus And it was the powers and the principalities, the religious leaders and the political leaders plotted to kill him. It wasn't the father who killed him. We've looked at sometimes this um, distorted gospel, if you will, which we're going to unpack more that N.T. Wright talks about. I had been taught that the death of Jesus was all about God saving me from my sin so that I could go to heaven. Rather, according to the book of Revelation, Jesus died in order to make us restored human beings with the vocation to play a vital part in God's purposes for the world. This holistic idea that sin creates this challenge that God is in the process of overcoming when heaven and earth are split apart, when things aren't happening on earth as they're supposed to be in heaven, God continues his plan to see that happen. Jesus is the climax of that plan, and eventually everything will be overlapped again. Last week we talked about, is God a monster or is he love? We can find verses that support both. But my charge to you is that we see who God really is when we look to the cross. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we are looking at our salvation. We discover in Christ a God that would rather die than to kill his enemies. We were singing the song, what the enemy intended for evil, right? killing Jesus. God worked for good. God worked that evil for our salvation. When we look at the cross, we see how Jesus responded to evil, injustice, false accusations. We see his forgiveness. We see his love. We see his self-giving. He bears our sins and he recycles it into forgiveness. On the cross, we see the lengths God will go to to forgive our sins. So today, we'll look at a beautiful gospel, and we'll start with the gospel of John. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you are here. I thank you for the ways you are moving in our midst. So may we have ears to hear your word today, Jesus. Amen. So let's look. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. God is reflecting upon himself in these verses. John has written it in a way that should bring us back to Genesis 1, but God is actually reflecting about who he is even before creation, that Jesus, in fact, is the Word. And how does this Jesus come to us? It goes on in verse 14, The Word became flesh and lived among us, 
And we have seen his glory in the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks behind me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So John is telling us this word, this Jesus, became flesh, incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. And John is John the Baptist cried out. John the Baptist was a prophet. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that John the Baptist was greater than all the other prophets before him. This is who John the Baptist is. And John the Baptist says, there's one coming that's greater than I. And he points to Jesus the one who brings grace and truth. Verse 17, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but his only son, himself God, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. So the Torah or the law was given by Moses. Jesus brings grace and truth. Verse 18, anybody object to John saying this, that no one else has seen God? Now, if you know your Old Testament well, you'll think, actually, there's several people that have seen God. What are you saying here, John? We look at Abraham. He saw God and shared a meal with him in Mamre. What about Jacob, who saw God at the top of the ladder in Bethel? What about Moses? He met God face to face when he received the Ten Commandments. What John is saying is all of those encounters with God pale in comparison so greatly that he can say no one has seen God until they have seen Jesus. No one has seen him until they have seen Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. Okay, two points of theology I want to put out there to help us unpack some of what we're hearing today. One, God does not change. We hear this from Malachi and other places, and also God is fully revealed in Christ, and that's what we've just been talking about in John 1. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time God was not like Jesus. We didn't always know that, but when Jesus showed up, we get to see that, in fact, this is who he is. Now, let me give you two gospel presentations. One, a distorted gospel, and I've already hinted at that. The distorted gospel begins in Genesis 3 what's called the fall. And there we see Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit, turning away from God. And then this version of the gospel says that God was turned away towards humanity, that he was not happy, that he was angry, that he was wrathful. But this God does send Jesus to humanity Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins to save us. And those that believe in him will receive their salvation and be spared the wrath of God. Those that do not believe in him are going to have to face the wrath of God alone. Now, Dallas Willard calls this the gospel of sin management. It's all about our personal sins and getting to heaven, I believe, so that I can go to heaven. This is the version that I grew up with. Now, that's the distorted gospel. Maybe some of you were thinking that was the gospel. That's okay. I did for a lot of years in my life. 
But there is a more beautiful gospel, and it doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1. It starts with God saying, I created humanity in my image, and it was very good. It starts with this original blessing that God gives to us to reflect his image, this original charge to bear his image out into the world, to make this world like himself. And we hear about Adam and Eve, and we know that they chose their own path. They turn away from God. But what does God do when they hide from him? God goes and looks for them because he loves them. And he provides from them, even in the garden itself. So let's talk a little bit about sin first. Let's unpack what that is. We might think of sin as some arbitrary lists of do's and don'ts, things you can't do because somehow they are bad. But really, there's a deeper meaning of sin, especially as we see it taking place in the Bible, but also in our lives. Sin or idolatry is not reflecting God's image into the world. We are made in his likeness to reflect it into the world, to bring flourishing into the world, to bring God's ways into the world. When we sin, we're handing over our power to some other lesser thing, some other thing in our life that we are centering it on. It gets our allegiance instead of God. So maybe it's money, maybe it's a career which are not bad things, but they become central things. They become things that we're willing to sacrifice for. They become things that grab our allegiance. They have control over our lives. So sin is really missing the mark. It's failing to live out purposes as God intended. It's deeper than just making a mistake. It's I failed to accomplish the purpose that I was born for, to reflect God's image. When humans rebel in the garden, God doesn't go, oh man, what am I going to do now? No, his charge to them is still the charge he wants to live out, reflecting God's image into the world, transforming the world into his likeness, into how things would be done if God were in charge. So he calls Abraham and a people to himself to begin this journey And it culminates in Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament provides the journey of how we get from that plan to Jesus. So what are we saved from? A couple of things that are important. We're saved from death. We're saved from old creation. We're saved from doing things our own way. We're saved from might makes right. We're saved from taking advantage of others. We're saved to life. Jesus has come to bring life and life to the full. We're saved to our original vocation to reflect God's image into the world. We're saved to new creation, being a part of what Jesus prayed on earth as it is in heaven. This is part of our salvation. See, the powers need to be dethroned, and we simply can't do that ourselves. We have given over our power to lesser things. It has a grip on us. We've made them ultimate things. So that sin itself has to be forgiven. It has to be weakened in our lives so we can set down lesser things in order to grab the ultimate thing and live out that reflection into the world. 
Now you're thinking, okay, maybe I understood sin differently and this is expanding and it seems like this beautiful gospel, God has always turned towards me. What about judgment? Judgment was on that other slide. What does that look like? And thankfully, we are not the judges, but Jesus is the judge. When we think of justice, we might think of retributive justice, eye for an eye. And we know that's not how Jesus is thinking. He's thinking restorative. His word says that he's going to reconcile some things. No, all things. His word in Revelation says, behold, I make all things new. So there's going to be this restoration, and he invites us into this restoration. What about the wrath of God? The distorted gospel says that Father God is angry at us, and Jesus gets in the way of that anger and saves us from the Father. That's a misunderstanding of the wrath of God. God has created a world where sin does have consequence. Call that the wrath of God if you like. But God is not personally mad at you. Justice matters to God. We see Jesus in the temple courts driving out those who are putting barriers between themselves and God. God cares about how we live. Things like greed, addictions, unfaithfulness bring their own consequences into our lives. They hurt and harm us. David Bentley Hart, an Eastern Orthodox theologian, talks about the wrath this way. The wrath of God in Scripture is a metaphor suitable to our feeble understanding, one which describes not the action of God toward us, but what happens when the extinguishable fervency of God's love toward us is rejected. This metaphor that's trying to describe in ways we can understand, what does that look like when we reject God's love? When his protection of his love is rejected, what does that look like? Brad Jersak, a Canadian theologian, says it this way, the wrath of God is understood as divine consent to our own self-destructive defiance. It can be like if you have kids and you see them doing things in their own lives that are causing destruction. They're not living in the way that you would want them to, and there are consequences that come with that. We see the rich young ruler in Scripture coming to Jesus, and he comes in front of Jesus and he says, what do I have to do? You know, I, I want to follow you, right? And yet Jesus knows there's something in this guy's heart that has a greater hold of him. It has its hooks into his heart that is really what he's living for. And so Jesus says, you know what? You have to give away your money. That's the only way this power is going to be broken in your life. And, and then we actually see how much power it has in his life. Right? He turns away and says, no, I, I'm not doing it. Cannot do it. Now, we don't hear anything more about the rich young ruler, but we know God's spirit is one that comes after us. And I have no doubt that God's spirit was coming after him, and I hope that one day the rich young ruler did give away everything and follow Jesus. We don't hear the story, but we... God doesn't force the rich young ruler to give away everything. He invites him into a relationship, but he allows him to experience the consequences of that rejection.
we hear the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son wanted to take from the father and live for himself, to, to go away to a foreign land, it says, and he journeys away from God. And we see in that story the father, this stand-in for God, continues to look for his son to return, continues to look, when is he going to come back? We see the prodigal in the pigsty, and maybe you call that the wrath of God, the consequences for what he has done. And eventually he decides to turn back, and he sees the father has been waiting for him the whole time. God's disposition towards you is one of love. It always has been and it always will be. Sin does have consequences. Look what it did to Jesus on the cross. Look what it does to our own lives. Sin isn't this legal problem or a debt. It's rather a problem of vocation, a problem of idolatry, a problem of losing God's purposes in our lives. But we see God's desire to bring the way things ought to be back to earth through the work of Jesus Christ and then through his image bearers, you and I. He sends Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who has always been God and is God, to show us in the flesh that he is turned towards us. Always. Let's see how Jesus has lived this out just in a few examples um, in Scripture. There was a man, rich and powerful. Um, he was a Jew, but he had sided with the Romans. He's a chief tax collector, so he is despised. He is not invited to the parties probably doesn't have many friends. He's pushed away and out of community. But he hears about this Jesus character, and he wants to come and see Jesus. And so Jesus says, Zacchaeus, let me go to your house. Let me come to you. And then the Pharisees are like, does not he know that this guy is a tax collector? They're thinking God has turned away, right? The Pharisees are thinking, you should have nothing to do with this person, but Jesus exactly knows who he is. He loves on Zacchaeus. And what does Zacchaeus do? We were talking about justice. He responds to that love of Jesus by repenting. He has been transformed. He gives back all the money plus to everything he's stolen. That's restorative justice. He's going to return it all. He's going to do even more than that. He's stepping out of old creation where he's looking for himself, looking for his own comfortableness, and now he's stepping into new creation to do life the way God intended it to be. And Zacchaeus becomes a follower of Jesus, and Jesus says, Salvation has come to this house today. Next story, there's a woman who is caught in adultery, and the Pharisees bring her in front of Jesus because they know the law. They know that, that God or the community is going to have to stone her because of her sin, it says in Deuteronomy 22, 22. So what will Jesus say? God doesn't say anything at first. 
But he writes his finger in the dust, and we don't know what he wrote. We don't have any written word from Jesus because he is the word. Jesus is what God has to say. To what, so what does God say? He says, let the one with no sin cast the first stone. One by one, from oldest to youngest, they set down their stones and they walk away. See, Jesus wasn't turned away from her, but he faces her now and says, where are your accusers? Is there nobody left to condemn you? And he says, neither do I condemn you. Jesus knew full well Deuteronomy 22, 22. He was the one, actually, that had no sin, that should have been throwing the stone if he was upholding the law. And what does he do instead? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He knows that sin will bring its own destructive consequences, but he meets her in that place and loves her. There was a Gentile that had been out in the wilderness, and this Gentile was so uh, struggled with so many things, so many struggles, so many spirits, so many things they called it legion. And Jesus goes after this person, seeks this person out, and comes in front of the Gentile. He says, I don't reject you. I don't give up on you. He speaks to the demons, come out of you. And this mind is restored. His life is restored. He is healed. Final story. Paralytic. Has to have a difficult life in that culture. And he has friends, though, and these friends carry him, dig a hole through the roof, and bring him in front of Jesus. Again, the Pharisees are there. What will Jesus do? Because they say only God can forgive sins. They're just waiting to trip him up. So God says, take up your mat and walk. See, the gospel isn't so much a legal remedy as it is healing. We are sick, and God has come to restore. He achieved victory over the powers and the principalities. He confronts those powers. He dies on the cross, confronting them with love and forgiveness. He dismantles it, not by bringing violence against violence. He dismantles it with his self-giving love. That is how God responds. Back to the distorted gospel. I was told, well, God is so holy that he can't look upon sin. And it comes from a misunderstanding of this verse. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. God is not saying that he cannot look at sin. He's saying that he cannot look at sin and do nothing about it. Habakkuk tells of God's heart to bring justice Have you ever seen Jesus unable to look at sin? We walked into so many of those stories today. Who in the Gospels is it that cannot look at sin? It's the Pharisees. 
But God is not like the Pharisees. God is Jesus. The Pharisees are bound to determine to force God into their image, and Jesus rejects it story after story. I came to the gospel, a distorted gospel, to be honest, one that was more about wrath than love. But I'd heard enough about Jesus to know that he was turned towards me, that he loved me. It took a while to fully believe that, to fully be transformed by that love, but there was enough there that kept me holding on. When I was in rebellion, when I was angry at church, when I was angry at the things that I had grown up with, when I was running away from Jesus and the church, literally not going, I was done, I was finished, Jesus was pursuing me. I couldn't verbalize that at the time, but there was something in my heart about his spirit that kept coming after me. When I was stealing things, getting into fights, drinking, not going to church, again, God's spirit, Jesus, God himself, is coming after me again and again and again. When we walk away, when we hurt others, when we've lost God's purposes in our lives, when we walk away, guess where God is? He's coming after us. He's not forcing us into this, but he wants us to see him. He wants us to know that his disposition towards us is always one of love. Part of why I'm doing this series is for us, but those in our lives who have been taught the lie that God does not love you, the church does not love you. Nobody should be living with the idea that God hates them. That is not God. The cross is not a payment, but simply an outpouring of God's forgiving work into our lives. Jesus reveals God's eternal disposition towards us, facing us to show us that love. What I want us to, to do today is you'll see those white sheets on your, on your seats there. And um, if you need a pen, just lift up your hand. The ushers will get it to you. This beautiful gospel, um, we might run from it. We might run away from it, but God is coming towards us. What are things maybe in your life that are keeping you from accepting the beautiful gospel? Maybe it's small things. Maybe it's big things. God doesn't force us into it, but he invites us again and again and again. So I'd encourage you to, to write something down. During the communion time, which Pastor Brenda will explain in a bit, um, you can come forward and, and leave those things here at the foot of the cross, this cross that shows us God's love. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a God who meets us where we are at, wherever that place is, far away or very near, open-hearted or closed-hearted, bitter or broken, you come after us. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your pursuit, Jesus. In your name, amen.